So um, we are continuing in our study on you. I've heard it said we've really gone through uh, one of these so far. We did two weeks on it on the fear of God, contrasting fear of God in the Old Testament to fear of God today, that there is a difference uh, in understanding this. And today we're going to be talking about uh, the difference between wisdom in the Old Testament for, for people and wisdom in the New Testament. And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for the time you give us together. We're thankful that there is uh, a wisdom, your kind of wisdom that we can see in our salvation, in the things you provided, but there's also wisdom for us that we can enjoy, uh, that we can uh, lay hold of and uh, put into very practical use in our daily lives, and we're thankful for that. We ask that you might help us to be able to see some of these things today. Amen. So, take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 6, just to start off with. We've already looked at this under the fear of God, but it comes up again here when we're talking about what was Israel's wisdom. I'm going to start with this verse, and then we'll ask you a question here. So, Deuteronomy chapter 4, and uh, Moses is saying, So keep and do them, and he's referring to the judgments and the commandments. Do them, for that is your wisdom. And then he says, and your understanding inside of the peoples. So he says, the law, the commandments and all that, this is your wisdom, Israel. Because the law told them not only what God wanted them to do, but how to do it, how to carry it out, how to achieve those ends. And God gave them that, all that instruction in the law. Now, that's right there. My guess is most Christians do not know that that verse exists. Now, let me... A lot of you may know that, but I'm just saying, my experience talking to people, there, there may be a lot of Christians that don't know that. Because if you talk to most Christians and ask them, what was Israel's law? Excuse me, that's not right. What was Israel's wisdom? Yes. It's not. I mean, it's out. I mean, your computer's not even on. Uh, okay. Well, we'll see if we can do that. Okay, there we go. The computer went to sleep. And for some reason, I, I can't get that password off there. So whenever it goes to sleep, you have to put a password in to open it back up again. And uh, so and the password is on a piece of paper there, but I didn't tell that to Aram. So it's not his fault. Anyway. Okay, here we go. Here we go. So if you ask most, most people... About this verse, like I said, most Christians I don't think probably know here in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that the law was really the source of Israel's wisdom. If you ask most Christians today, where do you, where do you go to find wisdom? Where are you, if you really want to find wisdom, where would you go? What, what do you think most people would say? Stick your necks out. Be brave. Proverbs. Proverbs. Yeah, most people are going to say Proverbs. Let's flip over to Proverbs for a moment. We're going to come back to Proverbs later in the day. 
or later, yeah, later in the day. That sounds like we're going to be here forever. <laughs> Proverbs. Um, it says in verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. This is Deuter uh, Proverbs 1.1. 1, 1. Proverbs 1.1. 1, 1. Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and discipline, to discern the sayings of understanding. So this is a book that's talking about wisdom. Verse 5, a wise man will hear and increase in learning. And a man of understanding, he will acquire wisdom. Have you ever heard, I'm probably going to misstate it, but it says, it, I think it goes something like this. It says, young too soon, wise too late. You ever heard that? It's like, boy, if you could have the wisdom you get that comes with age when you're 20, think of the problems that you would spare yourself. <laughs> but it seems like it, sometimes you, you learn that wisdom by going through all that experience. Kind of what we were looking at and talked about in the last hour, and we've talked about many times before, that God, as God matures you, you gain wisdom in that maturing process. But that means you go through those hardship. You go through those different things where you have to learn how to depend on God. And if you don't ever go through hard things, we tend to be, as people, lazy about our relationship with God. Hard things, hard challenges in our life, push us to learn to depend on God. And in that, we're gaining wisdom. And so for many people, we have the book of Proverbs. And, of course, if you were kind of like me growing up, you were taught a lot of times, you ought to read a proverb a day. Or at least a chapter of the book of Proverbs. You ought to read one of those every day. And there's 31 of them, so you got... 31 for those months that have 31, and for those that aren't, you know, you, you've got an extra one hanging over there at the end, that's okay. But you're reading Proverbs because you're gaining wisdom. And of course, there is a, maybe you've never heard this, but there is a debate about the book of Proverbs, whether the book of Proverbs is a book of human wisdom that is divinely recorded, or whether it is divine wisdom humanly recorded. And I would say largely, if you read through the book of Proverbs, many of the things that you're going to read in the book of Proverbs are things that people that have taken time in life to actually pay attention to things, they're things that they pick up on, that they develop in terms of what we would call Proverbs or statements of wisdom. Meaning, I would say largely the book of Proverbs is human or earthly wisdom at its best, but it is divinely recorded. God divinely has Solomon write these things down. And you know, even an unsaved person, if they paid attention to the book of Proverbs and actually did some of these things, they would find benefit in it. You don't have to be a believer to actually experience benefit from many of the Proverbs in here. Because they're just going to give you practical aspects about how to relate to people and about dealing with tempers and things like that and how to handle your money, and how to be a person that does this thing or that thing, or avoids this or avoids that. And it's the kind of things that, well, if you were like me, your dad probably shared some of those things, probably not even knowing that it was in the Bible. Maybe not even knowing that, that, that the thing that your dad's telling you was actually written in the book of Proverbs. I didn't mean to make it dad's because it's Father's Day, it just... I've always think my, my dad was the one, not my mom. My dad was the one that was always trying to share tidbits of wisdom with me as a kid. You know, son, if you would, he never called me son, but you know, if you did such and such like this, then this, and he would share those things. I remember those, riding in the car with him and him sharing little bits of, of knowledge and such at times. A lot of that would be 
what you have in the book of Proverbs. It's really Solomon's writing these things to share them with his son. So I'm not in any way, I want you to be clear, I'm not in any way saying the book of Proverbs is not a book that has value to it. In fact, I would say there are things in the book of Proverbs that you'll find as a believer valuable in terms of just practical, everyday life kind of wisdom. But it's not particularly wisdom that is going to enhance your spiritual life. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For you and I, in terms of our, our living our Christian life, we're going to find that we have a, a different source for wisdom today. And it's not saying that the book of Proverbs is worthless, but the book of Proverbs is not going to enhance your spiritual life. It's not going to be one that's really going to push or enhance your relationship with God. Notice what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Reading from the New American Standard, it says, But by his doing, or from him that is from God, you are in Christ Jesus who has become to us wisdom from God. See, he's become to us wisdom from God. And righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And I don't believe the way the New American Standard writes this, wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I believe that those are the three areas that Paul is pointing to that are the specific ways that God has made Christ wisdom to us. It's not that he's not wisdom in others, but these are three that he's mentioning. And so let's take a look at these three. First of all, he is our righteousness. Second of all, he is our sanctification. Fancy word meaning you're set apart to him. And thirdly, he's our redemption. And that word redemption here lays emphasis on freedom. So let's take a look at this righteousness in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Second Corinthians 5.21, it says, And he, referring to the Father, made him, referring to Jesus Christ, who knew no sin. Jesus Christ did not experientially know sin. It was never part of his life. He never sinned. He made him to become sin on our behalf. So while he's hanging on the cross, he takes our sins and puts those on him. And he just says sins in general. So those are our acts of sins. I would say it would even include what we call our sinful nature. And he imputes all of that. All that is qualified or comes under this quality of sin. He places that on Christ. And he becomes that so that we then might become God's righteousness in him. So God counts you to be in Christ. And in Christ, God now has made you his kind of righteousness in Christ. Every moment of every day. That's an application of what Jesus Christ did to us. And that's really what wisdom is. Wisdom is when you have knowledge and you apply that knowledge to a given situation. So yesterday, we're out for lunch at Judy's. And what do you do when you're out for lunch with a nurse? You got to talk nursing stuff. I do. I've always got things I want to ask. And so we end up talking about shots and injections and my daughter's telling me where you give shots and where you don't give shots and that she's pretty good at giving shots here and there and things like that. And there's wisdom that comes with that because she says, you give, you give shots here, you don't give shots in this spot because then you're likely to cause some problems and things like that. 
And see, so that's wisdom. Those are things that you learn over the years that people have done this. They advise you how to do that. That's wisdom. You take this knowledge. Here's the anatomy of the body. This is where this works. And this shot works best when you, when you give it here, when you apply it here. The other thing that I had somebody share with me a number of years back, somebody that was in our church many years ago is no longer with us, uh, shared with me that wisdom, he always looked at wisdom as not only knowing how to apply knowledge, but knowing when to apply knowledge. What you know is not always appropriate to every situation, right? <laughs> there's, there's, sometimes it's knowing when to use what you know. Now's the time. Now's the time for you to use that. Okay. And so there's the application of that. This is an application. He told, tells us over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Christ is become wisdom to us from God. And the first one he mentions is righteousness. God has made us uh, his kind of righteousness in Christ. That's our position. That's our standing. But not only that, but to turn over to Philippians chapter 3. Now, I did not get together with Josh and Jennifer and say, hey, choose this song Sunday, because I want to talk about that verse for a minute or two. But we sang about this song, and I'm glad that Josh pointed out because I don't know if I would have, I was singing the song, and I think I would have got to that one verse, because the one verse goes through verse 10, essentially. Hopefully I would have picked up on it. But he called our attention to the fact this comes out of Philippians 3. And if you look in verse 9, Paul's looking at all of his past accomplishments, and he says at the end of verse 8, I count all those things lost. In fact, I count them rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Verse 9, and might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that which is from law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that is based upon faith. In other words, I don't want a law kind of righteousness. What would that be? Doing law stuff, obeying the law. That would be a law righteousness. Paul says, I don't want that. I want a righteousness that comes from faith. And he's not talking about your eternal standing before God. He's talking about your practical righteousness, which then he explains what that practical righteousness looks like in verse 10. That I may experientially know him. Oh, we all say, we want to really get to know Christ. I want to say I know Christ. Okay, well then Paul's going to show you, this is how you know Christ, at least in these areas. I want to know the power of his resurrection. Does your life, do you in your life experience resurrection power? Do you live by that power that resurrected Christ? Do you live that out? Paul tells us over in Ephesians 1, the power that raised him from the dead is the power that God works in us now. Paul says, I want to experience that. Then he goes on, and the fellowship of his sufferings. He's not talking about the sufferings that Christ went through when he hung on the cross. These are the sufferings that Christ goes through right now. You say Christ suffers right now? Yes. When you suffer down here, your Savior suffers with you. When the body of Christ suffers right now, your Savior suffers with you. When Jesus Christ confronted Paul on the road to Damascus, what's the first thing he says to Paul? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was persecuting the church. See, but Christ feels that. He takes that personally. And the sufferings of Christ. This is how you get to know Christ. When people suffer down here, when believers suffer, you suffer with them. You don't stand aloof and go, glad it's not me. No, you share in their suffering. You share in what it is for them to go. And do you, can you share in it as a believer? Do you always share in it exactly the same way that you feel it exactly? No. 
But does that mean that, that you can't share some? No, you can share some. You don't have to have gone through what they're going through to share in their suffering. And so he says, the, the fellowship of his sufferings, while being conformed to his death. We just looked a little bit ago. What did he die to when he died on the cross? Ask the kids this this week, because when you'd ask the kids, what did Jesus do? He died for us. Well, yeah, the Bible does say that. But what did he die for when he died for us? What does the scripture say? Died for our sins. And we were talking about that just a little bit ago over in 2 Corinthians. God made him to be sin for us. So when we're conformed to his death, it means that you are one that is experiencing the freedom from the dominion of your sinful nature and from the dominion of Satan that is enticing you to sin and the dominion or the lure, shall we say, or the distraction of the world that wants you going down a path that may lead to sin. And so being conformed to his death is you're remembering, I died with Christ to the sin nature, but I'm alive unto God. And because I'm dead and this I'm also free from Satan's dominion. And I, Paul says over in Galatians, I've been crucified even to the world. And Paul looks at all of this and he says, you know what? That's the righteousness I want. I want the righteousness that comes out when I am living free at a moment from the dominion of my sin nature and I'm actually sharing in the sufferings that other people have by living out resurrection power. We could put another word in there. I don't want to get myself in trouble with Josh. I'm just joking when I say that. Because <laughs> Josh was commenting last week, some people make everything love. Sometimes I can be guilty of that. But really, when Paul's talking about those three things in there, a big part of what he's talking about is actually exercising some genuine love for other believers. It's part of it. I wouldn't say it's the totality, but it is definitely part of it. I was just giving Josh a hard time. So I was listening last week when you were teaching. Okay. So, Paul says, first of all, God has made Christ to us wisdom by making him for us justification or righteousness. Secondly, he's made us sanctification. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but this time we're going to go to verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. It says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified. That means, well, let's keep reading. Sanctified, where does it say? Where does it say? In Christ. In Christ Jesus. If we just stopped with have been sanctified, you could look at this and say, these are people, that they are sanctified saints. That's kind of redundant because you're talking, the words really mean the same thing. But it would be like saying, these people are perfect. They do everything right. They never do any sin anymore. And that's not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying that they, in Christ, in Christ we are set apart to God. Doesn't say we're perfect. Doesn't say we're finished. Doesn't say we don't have any problems or we don't sin anymore. But it means that every moment of every day, God says, I'm always set apart to him. Or another way to look at it, because I'm set apart to him, I am to him special. Whether we recognize that or not. There is a practical aspect to sanctification also. Turn to 1 Thessalonians. By the way, this is important because a lot of Protestants, Protestant Christians, we're lumped together with them. They look at sanctification primarily in terms of the next one we're going to look at here. 
but they fail to see that we're already sanctified in Christ. But turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3, it says, For this is the will of God. This is his desire. So this is what he desires for you. Your sanctification. In other words, he's talking, he says, something God wants you to do is actually on a practical, on a practical level now, live out some sanctification. Actually live like you're set apart to God. And in what way? That you abstain from sexual immorality. And then he goes on and he says, in the next verse, that each of you know how to possess or acquire his own vessel. We've been over that. I don't think that ha that has to do with taking control of this. That has to do with, we've talked about this, with acquiring a spouse with the proper attitude, not with the improper attitude that some people go about acquiring a spouse. But the point that he's getting at primarily in verse 3, and it's gonna, it affects what he says in verse 4, is that part of being set apart on a practical level is abstaining from sexual immorality. That's not the totality. If that's all that that is, you do that and you're always sanctified. But there's a lot of believers that aren't sanctified. They may be perfect here. They may, be, they may obey this, but they don't live set apart to God in other ways, in other aspects, in other areas of their life. But this is just a demonstration that there is a practical aspect of sanctification, okay? So this is something also that God has. So God has made Christ's wisdom for us by making him the place. Christ is, Christ is where God is applying his knowledge to us. That knowledge is applied, first of all, by saying that we're righteous in Christ. And then, in Christ being the place where we can actually live out practical righteousness. That's really, that's real wisdom in the way that we relate to others. Then he's the place where we are set apart and then also, as we're saying, seeing here, that there is a practical level of sanctification that can be lived out. Now we move on to the last of these three, and redemption. And the reason I come here to Titus chapter 2, and if you go to Titus 2 for a moment, this is not our word for redemption that we have over there in um, 1 Corinthians 1.30. This is the base of that word, though. That word over there is apolutrosis. This is the verb lutrao that apolutrosis is built on. And if you look in Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, it says in verse 14, who gave himself on behalf of us in order that he might ransom, redeem, pay for, purchase us from all lawlessness and cleanse for himself a people that are zealous for good or beautiful works. So he has ransomed us. But notice, he's ransomed us from all lawlessness. That's showing you that what he had to take care of was he didn't buy us back because we were worthy, because we were the, you know, we were the, the royalties, prince and prin prince or princesses, whatever, and somebody kidnapped us and taken us from hell, holding us, excuse me, hostage, and he had to buy us. No. He's ransoming us because we were guilty of lawlessness. We were guilty of sin. And it's our own penalty that we brought on ourselves in this regard that he has to ransom us from and free us so that we don't have to live like this anymore. Which if you go over to 1 Peter chapter 1 
and I realize maybe you don't think so, but I feel like I'm running. First Peter chapter 1, I feel like we're running through this this morning. But First Peter chapter 1, in verse 18, again, we have this the, the, the base of this word, this word to redeem or to ransom. It says, knowing that you were not redeemed or ransomed with perishable things like silver or gold from your... Now, the New American Standard here says futile way of life. Literally, it's a vain way of life. And this word vain means it doesn't produce anything worthwhile. It's a way of life of a conduct that you've inherited from your fathers. Now, if your father was a believer in Christ, they, pa they hopefully passed on to you some of this. This wisdom, the wisdom in Scripture and the teaching of Scripture. But what Peter is getting at is most of us, even if your parents were believers, we, they also can pass on a certain way of life to you. And that way of life, Peter is saying, is not a way of life that's going to promote what God necessarily wants. We're not saying it's all bad. We're just saying it's not what God's looking for. He's not looking for us just to act like mom and dad. He's looking for people that will be his children and reflect his character. And so he says, we've been redeemed from this. In fact, well, look back up in verse 14, just so you can see this. He says, as obedient children... See, he's looking at this as us being children. He's looking at us being God's children. He's not talking to the kids in the churches. He's talking to all of us as believers being children. And he wants us to be obedient children. So in verse 18, he says, we've been redeemed. We've been ransomed from that empty way of life. Your mom and dad have, may have taught you tons of great values and work, hard work skills. Those things are all well and good, but you know what those things will never do for you? They will never produce a Christ-like character because that's not of itself Christ-likeness. You can do those things without being Christ-like. You can do those things and be Christ-like. And that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to be Christ-like in the midst of this everyday conduct and character. And he says in verse 19, what we were redeemed with, not by silver and gold, but in verse 19, but by the precious blood as of a lamb that is unblemished and spotless, that is the blood of Christ. Then if you jump down to verse 22, here's part of the goal of being ransomed from that way of life. Since you have, you know, by obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere or genuine love of the brothers, fervently love one another, from the, from the heart. And you had to look at it, make sure I was looking at the right word. He says, you can obey the truth now as a believer. And obeying the truth, you can purify your soul. Because your soul's got mixed motives. It's got some things that are good. It's got some things that are off. And you're able to purify that so that when you, so you can genuinely love them absolutely with the kind of pure love and motives that Jesus Christ had. Not mixed motives. Not kind of a mix of, there's some things that are genuine, some things that are kind of this way. He says, no, you can actually have this genuine kind of love. So love one another, he says. So love one another like that. Love one another from the heart because you've actually cleaned that up. And it's cleaned up because you have this redemption. Now let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to look actually at that word redemption. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. <clears throat> 
Ephesians 1 and verse 7, it says, In him, that's in Christ, we have redemption. Now that's our big word. That's the bigger word. That's not the lutrao, it's apolutrao, or in this case the noun apolutrosis. It's, it's the freedom that results from being redeemed. The price has been paid, you're released, now you can live free. And he says this redemption you have through him involves the forgiveness of, he doesn't say sins here, he says our trespasses. Which our trespasses are far bigger than our sins because you trespass a lot more than you sin. Sin is an action that you do. Trespass is the stuff that goes on in your head where you're thinking, well, I do it this way, and this is what I do. You ever been that person? Maybe you've never ever done this. But sometimes people sit around and they might say, um, you know what? I can rob that bank, and this is the way I do it. I do it like this, and I plan it on this day, and I go in like this, and I'm doing this, and they kind of plan that out, and they go, yeah, I could do that. And you could just do that for goofing around, but that's, that's all unrighteous. And if you look at that and say, I, I think I'm going to go ahead and do that maybe. I, th I think I'm going to plan that thing. Now you've stepped over and it really becomes a trespass that you are entertaining in your mind things that God really doesn't want you to entertain. So do you see how a trespass is something that is bigger than a sin? And it's something that you go, well, it's not a sin, so it's okay, because I'm not actually doing anything wrong. And it's, you, you get it, God. It's okay. It's just, just kind of, eh. And God goes, no, I, I don't want you thinking like that. I don't want you taking your mind and thinking like that. I've got better things for you to set your mind on than trying to think about things that don't fit as part of your Christian life. And so he says, you've been redeemed, forgiven all those trespasses. They've been sent away. You're freed even from that. Implication again is, not only has he sent that away, but you're freed that you don't have to live in trespasses anymore. It's not that you just can avoid doing bad things. You're going to avoid having your mind thinking like that. Not constantly, obviously, but you have the potential to do this. So these, and if you want to see this, and I threw this up there, this is part of the good things that God says about us. Because then notice what he says here in verse 8. He says, well, let's read all of verse, we haven't finished all of verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. His grace isn't measured out in little doses. He's rich with his grace. He's generous with his grace. Put yourself back in the Late 1970s. Some of you don't remember the late 1970s, but some of you do. So you knew how, you have an, but you have an idea what, what the value of money was. And my wife had probably her, just about her best friend, right, growing up, worked downtown at a cafe in the town where they lived in. And she had some people come in, big fancy Cadillac pulls up, the guy gets out, and they walk in, and he's got his friends and all of this, and he brings a bunch of friends in there, and it doesn't take long to tell that these people are not from the area. They've all got a southern drawl, and they sit down, and they order supper, and they have this meal. And when they leave, as she goes over to kind of clean up the table in the cafe, she sees that there is a $100 bill laying on the table. That's not what he's paying the meal for. That's what's left. That's the tip. He paid the meal at the cash register. And she grabs the money. Oh, I always thought you told me it was a hundred. It's fifty. I've, what? 
That was four people, $50 tip in a, in a cafe. We're not talking about a five-star restaurant. We're talking about a cafe where probably every plate was probably under 10 bucks, okay? Just to put it in perspective, at least. And she chases him down, goes out the street. He goes, she goes, sir, sir, I think you made a mistake. This is what you left on the table. And what did he say? Honey, we eat big in Texas and we tip big in Texas. <laughs> did everybody hear that? We eat big in Texas and we tip big in Texas. So we left a $50 tip. That was a big tip. Think about that. In other words, that man opened his wallet and was extremely generous for 1979. <laughs> a $50 tip in a small town cafe. That was extremely generous. Okay. Maybe that illustration went too far <laughs> in not illustrating this. But the whole point is God is not the guy that reaches into his pockets and says, Grace, let's see, I've got a little bit of change and a dollar left. There's the tip. I leave that on the table. No, he's generous. He's the guy that opens up and pulls out a generous, a generous provision of grace. And notice what he goes on and says in, in verse 8, which he lavished, which he lavished or abounded to us in all wisdom and frame of mind or reflective thinking or attitude. He says he has abounded this in all wisdom. This is the point. This is why we come back to this before we move on to the, the, the last section I want to touch on here. What he's trying to say here is all these things that he says going back into verse 4 where he says that in Christ we're holy and without blame and in Christ, verse 5, we've been placed as sons and verse 6, in Christ, he's treated us with grace and in Christ, in verse 7, we have redemption and we have the forgiveness of sins. The reason he says it is just all of that is practical. If you sit here and listen to us teach on this and you go, this isn't practical. I got to get up tomorrow, eat breakfast and work and do my stuff. I just need to know how to get through that day. Paul says, this is practical. It has to do with God's wisdom for how you live. That as you go out, you can go out and do everything that God has for you to do in the rest of the day, but you can do that saying, God says, I am holy and without blame in Christ. You think that is not going to affect the way you relate to life? That God says you're a son. He doesn't say you're a little sniveling, snot-nosed child down there that can't hardly enunciate what he's supposed to tell you. He says you're a son. Somebody of maturity within the family. In Christ. That's practical as you move out into the world. And he says all of that that you have is all by his grace, which means you didn't earn it and you can't lose it. That's practical. Because I can guarantee you the minute you blow it, and you will, that Satan's going to be there whispering in your ear, you lousy, stupid loser, God's going to take it from you. He's going to be suggesting something along that line. Or, well, God might not take it from you, but he's not going to let you do anything with it anymore. It's like, yeah, he gave you that toy. He's not going to take it away, but he won't let you play with it. And he's going to be suggesting, and you need to know it's all by God's grace. It can't be lost. That's practical. And actually, as, this, as he, Paul builds the case through this letter, eventually he's going to get into how practical it is for the way you relate to other people. 
If you'd remember that everything God says about you, he also says about every other Christian, and everything he says about you is by grace, and he says everything about others by grace, it's going to encourage you to be a person that is gracious with others. And you know, if we'd all learn to be kinder and gracious with each other, it would definitely be a better place. I'm not talking about even about the world. I'm just talking about even just with believers, it would be better. Even if we just got that. Now, from here then. Oh, look at that. I had slides in this. Anyway, I want to look at one more of these. Colossians chapter 2. I want to look at another aspect of God's wisdom to us. That one, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30 says, God has given us wisdom and that wisdom is in Christ. And it relates to the way we have, have, we have um, righteousness. Both we have it and can live it out. The way we're set apart to God and can live it out. And the way we're redeemed and can live like we're redeemed. Those are all practical. God's wisdom applied to us, but also practical for us in every day. That's wisdom. But now it comes here to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 3. It says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I'm going to just say the reason Paul says hidden is because the people that are causing problems behind the scenes are trying to apparently give the indication or that are trying to imply or trying to teach that there's like this hidden secret knowledge and maybe you're one of those that can actually get it. And you know this is the truth. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, everything that God says in this book, you have the potential to understand and appreciate in full. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to go and get a PhD. You just need to know this, know God, and live this out, and you can know this. This is written for the man of God. This is not written for the specialist. But there are people yet today that are going to imply that there's like secret hidden knowledge here that only a few of you are ever going to be able to figure out and attain to. And the rest of those people, well, we'll just kind of let them do their thing because <laughs> we kind of look at them and, you know, uh. no, every believer has the potential for this. So let's go back. Let's go back to chapter one. And look at what he says here at the end of verse 28. He's talking about Christ from verse 27. He says, and we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man. And we've talked about this. Admonishing means to put a person in mind of something, to learn a lesson, or to be warned. And teaching, of course, now it's just practically, this is what it is, and this is what this is, and this is what this is. So he says, we admonish every man and teach every man with all wisdom. In other words, Paul just didn't teach. This is who Christ, this is who Christ is, and this is who you are in Christ. And here it is. There, there's, there's the facts. Walk away. You got a list to put in your pocket. Paul says we do it in what wisdom? Because we want you to see that there's a practical application of what God is doing with you as a believer in Christ. And the purpose of that is, the end of verse 28, that we may present... Notice, what, what's the adjective he uses in front of the word man? What's it say? That we might present... What does it say? Everyone. Everyone. Does he say the elite? 
Does he say the guys that went off to Bible college, went to seminary, the guys that got a PhD, the guys that got five PhDs? No. He says that we might present every man complete or mature in Christ. I don't care who you are. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can be one who is mature in Christ. And it comes by understanding who Christ is, who you are in him, and seeing how God takes that and makes that practical, the wisdom. And for this purpose, Paul says, I labor striving according to his power, which works mightily in me. Verse 1 of chapter 2, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and all those who have not personally seen my face, so that their hearts may be encouraged. So now this is the goal. This is how he's showing. He's giving you an example of how this on a practical level, wisdom on a practical level will work. This is one of the ways that we mature, that your hearts might be encouraged. Do your hearts sometimes need to be encouraged? Do your hearts, that's where you make decisions, do your hearts sometimes, do they get down in the dumps? Do they get overwhelmed so that it's hard for you to make good decisions? Yes. Every last one of us. I still always kind of say here the thing I tell you oftentimes. I think one of the best kept secrets in Christian churches is we think everybody else has their act together. And the fact is, Everybody that you get together with is going through stuff. And there's a word that the world uses that I would fill in for stuff, but I'm not going to use that word <laughs> because that's the way they would describe it. But people are going through stuff and it's hard and it's miserable. And there are people that you get together and meet as Christians and you think they got it together. And you know what? They are falling apart on the inside. And they don't know if they're going to get it through the day. But Paul says, your hearts will be encouraged. And having been knit together in love, this is one of the next thing you need. You not only need your heart encouraged, but you need your heart knit together with these other people. God did not design any of us to function as an island. He designed us to function as what? Parts of a body. And those parts are tied together by joints and ligaments. He's going to talk about them in here. He talks about them in Ephesians chapter 4. And so our hearts are knit together, he says, here in love. And then all the, the riches that come from a full assurance. You know what full assurance means? It's a word in the Greek that means not kind of supported on a rickety stick that any moment you think that stick's going to break and the whole thing's going to... You ever watched videos of third world countries where they're building buildings and you look at the scaffolding and they're up three or four stories and you're thinking, I wouldn't climb up that to save my life. You're, I can't believe that things not, hasn't just crashed and come breaking down. No, we're talking about solid. We're talking OSHA approved. No, shouldn't mock that. But you know what I'm talking about. We're talking about good, solid scaffolding and they build that and it's solid and it's well supported and you can get up there. That's, that, was that, that's the background of this word, full assurance. It has that idea of something that is fully carried, fully born, fully supported. And so he says that you might then, uh, and by these the riches of the full assurance of understanding with this knowledge of, and then he's going to talk about this, and, and I don't have time to develop this, so I'm going to take the shortcut, the cheap route with this. 
but it's the mystery about God the Father and the Christ. And it's a mystery that you have a relationship in God the Father and in the Christ, and it's one where you are seen as one. Jesus gave a little bit of background that's the basis of this in John 17, where he says we might be one thing in the Father and in the Son. That's the body. We're one thing in the Father and in the Son. He adds here that it's the Christ. That's the part of the mystery part of this. And when he gets done by saying this, he says, in whom? That in this relationship are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, you don't have to be that special elite someone to get this. Everybody can know this. He says, this wisdom, practical wisdom is hidden in this relationship. If you'd spend more time focusing on the relationship that you have in the Father and in, the, and in Christ, rather than focusing on trying to be that, this kind of comes from the last hour, those of you that were with us in the first hour, trying to be that, that somebody that everybody looks up, up to going, oh, I want to be that guy. I want to be super Christian. I want to be super pastor. I want to be super fill of whatever that thing is over there. He's got it together and he knows how to do it. All. I want that. Rather than doing that kind of nonsense, being the person that focuses more and more on this is who God says I am in Christ and that relationship I have in Christ also exists in the Father. Because I'm in Christ and Christ is in the Father, therefore I'm in the Father. We have, Jesus says this over in the Gospels, over in the upper room in John 14, and he says there's wisdom there. There's a practical application of knowledge. Let's take an example of that practical application of knowledge for you as a believer right here. Turn over to chapter 3. Turn over to chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and uh, let's go to... Um, where do I want to go to here? I want to go to verse 15. It says, Let the peace of the Christ rule or act as an umpire in your hearts, Indeed, you were called in one body, and be thankful. There are all kinds of things that are going to pull us apart and divide us and get us distracted by other things out there in the world. It can be within the world as it's related to religion and churches. It can be in the world as it terms maybe our job just the activities that the world says, you need to do this, you need to do this thing, whatever that may be. And all of those things can cause us to lack peace and to divide from other Christians because I don't like that Christian because of what he does here. And I don't like those people there because of what they do there. And I'm going to, and I'm just going to, I'm going to say this. You, you know, I've told you this before. I struggle Believe it or not, this is crazy. I struggle sometimes with being a little bit arrogant about Bible teaching <laughs> to the point that I'm like, I can come across with the impression everybody else has got it wrong and they're all stupid. <laughs> and yet, God, the minute I develop that attitude, God will prove me wrong and God will make me realize that we're all part of one body and I've changed my attitude and helped me adjust to dealing with some of those people. And I say that because it's the peace of Christ that I need to rule in my heart. So here's, here's this practical application now. If 
you and I are both believers in Jesus Christ. What God says about me, he also says about you. And what he says about me by grace, he says about you by grace. And if you and I, for, one ever, for whatever reason, do not see eye to eye and we're doing this or I've got a problem with you and I can be just really cantankerous, I can be cantankerous. Can I be cantankerous, Peggy? Okay, she, she raised her eyebrows because that, that's her way of saying, yep, uh-huh, yeah, I can be cantankerous. I can be annoying. And I can act like that way. But if I stop and say, wait a second, that believer is in Christ. And God the Father sees them knit together with me. And not only does he see us knit together in Christ, but he also sees us in Christ together in him. It's like he's taken us and in Christ he's put us together and then wrapped another layer of togetherness around the outside. It's comparable to the oneness that the Father and the Son have. Are the Father and the Son two gods? No, the Bible says they're one God. And they share, they share that essence. Well, you and I on a comparable level in the body of Christ, we share also a commonness as all being part of one body in Christ. And if I set my mind to that, and you set your mind to that, I would challenge you. No, I'm not going to challenge you. I was going to say, I'll challenge you to not get along. No, you don't need. I'm going to, you're going to find out that it's going to do a lot to help the two of you get along. And you know what? When you have a brother that you don't see things eye to eye on, you're never going to see things eye to eye if you guys just decide you're going to go your separate ways and turn your noses in the air. But if you actually can learn to get along and see each other as God sees you, you're going to find out that if there's something I need to get fixed in the way I think, God will help me see that. And if there's something that you need to get fixed in the way you think about God, God will help you get that. But it's only going to happen as we're going to be able to function together. It's not going to happen if I go out on a lone island and hang out there and say, I'm going to just do my theology by myself because no one else is good enough to do theology with me, which is a silly thing in the first place, do theology. That's, that's the way they say it these days. They don't talk about teaching the Bible. We're going to do theology. <laughs> How many of you do theology? <laughs> anyway, the closing point here, as we're looking at this today, and I had a couple of examples, contrast, but I'm not going to take you there. Uh, one with regard, and I'll just throw them out. Just You can look at them just to let you know. The Proverbs has some things about wealth, and you can learn some really good things. In fact, one of them I thought was really interesting when I was looking, looking through some of these things, because it's a... The, the COVID thing and what the government's done over the last year, I think it falls in there. It says, wealth that is gained easily or hastily <laughs> leads to poverty. Because you know what? <laughs> I can guarantee you there are a lot of people all around the United, the United States that got rain cash down this year, and it has gone out of their hand faster than they could ever earn it. And they're just spending it like it's going out of style. And that's exactly what the book of Proverbs says. It comes easily. Yeah. And you know what? The New Testament says that's not the way you ever look at it in the first place. The New Testament says you look at wealth as something that God gives you to serve with. Not to serve yourself, but to serve others with. And then it also tells us in the book of Proverbs, warns the men because it's being written to a son, and it says, boy, watch out for that woman that bats her eyes at you. Because... <laughs> She's going to lead your heart astray, and it's going to promise pleasure, but it will lead to pain and or bitterness, is the word it uses in the Hebrew, bitterness and death. 
In other words, stay away from her. It's going to lead nowhere good. And there is truth to that. But you know what the New Testament says? The New Testament says you avoid those things because you died with Christ. It doesn't scare you into being good. It tells you you died and are freed from that. So why would you want to live that way? And I just find that to those, I was thinking, when I was thinking about some of these things, and we could have spent the whole day just looking at contrast between the book of Proverbs and the way the New Testament moves us to these things. But I wanted to look at these aspects of the fact that our wisdom is found in our relationship with Christ. Because God has made us right, made him to us, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. That's practice. That's practical. That's wisdom. And it's in our relationship in Christ and in the Father that we find not a little bit of wisdom, but a storehouse, a treasure house of wisdom that'll help us as we learn to live this life and get along with each other. Now, is that a little different? Do you think you're going to find that wisdom that we just looked at, those two things we get, those things we get in Christ? Do you think you're going to find that in the book of Proverbs? No. I've read through the Proverbs. I've read through Proverbs many times. It does not tell you those things. It does not provide for you that kind of wisdom. You know why? Because that is, I would say, the best kind of wisdom that man can achieve. But God's given us his kind of wisdom in our relationship to him and our relationship in Christ. You've heard it said, there's wisdom in the law. And you've heard it said that the book of Proverbs is a great source of wisdom. And yeah, there, there's some practical things. But there is a better wisdom for us that God has for us today in our relationship in Christ. Father, we're thankful for the time you've given us together. We're thankful for the source of wisdom that we have from you in Christ, for what Christ has become for us today. And that as we learn to relate to that, to set our minds to those things, we on a very practical level can live out that relationship with one another in this world, to this world and its things, dealing with our flesh. All of these things, you have given us a better source of wisdom in who we are in Christ. And we ask that we would, well, if, if it's something we have a problem with, and I trust we don't here, but that if we ever treat our position in Christ as though it's something where we just amass a list of things that you say, but we don't take the time to realize this is practical. This is something we need right now, every day, in the way we relate to life and especially each other. We'd ask that your, your spirit would really impress that on our minds to see that this is where your real wisdom is for us today. And we would thank you for this then. Thank you for the time together and for whatever you have in store for us in the remainder of this day, that we might do so in the wisdom that is ours from you in Christ. Amen. Thank you, and have a great day, whatever your plans.